0: amen and amen you can go and have a seat and welcome to harvest it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord amen and we love opening the word of God we're going to continue in our series in John chapter 6 and um, if you have not had the opportunity um, to get a copy of God's word we have one for you in the back and nothing would do us a greater joy and pleasure than for you to take God's word and and read it and have it that's our gift to you um, and what a privilege it is to be together and whether this is your first time here whether you haven't been here in a while or whether you you've been here for a long while. We are so thankful that you are here, and you are loved and cared for, and we're so thankful for how God is moving and working here. Um, Praise God for how he's building his church. Amen. And he really, really is. And uh, thank you again. I know I said it last Sunday, but I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of our staff and our elder team for how you guys rallied to support the the marriage conference that we had the privilege of hosting last weekend, continue to get feedback about how God is moving and working in individuals and marriages and relationships for his glory, both here and regionally. Um, And so praise God for that. And as Jesus continues to build his church here, one of the things that we want to do is continue to align our, our systems and our structures to enhance that and enable us to have more, a stronger assimilation and spiritual formation. So one of the things that we've been talking with about as a church family over the last couple of months is that we're moving our, our giving platform from Alexia which, uh, to Planning Center. And so I just want to say, one, thank you for all of you that have made that transition over. Two, we're going to continue to finalize that integration over the, ne- uh, the w- last week and, next week and a half. And so we're going to move um, uh, the Planning Center uh, integration, the platform, onto our harvestannapolis.org give website. And so that if you've been giving through that website, you're actually still giving through the old Alexio database um, platform. And so I just want you to know in a week and a half, we're going to sort of be making that transition. And so I do want to say thank you for all the those that you give and how God is moving and working too. For those that have made the transition, thank you. Um, if you've sort of already stopped what you've been doing on the website, would you please make sure you're started and put a new um, account on the harvest uh, Church Center.com. You can do that on the app. You can scan the, the QR code in front of you, Or you can go to harvestnaples.churchcenter.com to start up your account there, and just go to click the give button and do whether it's one-time or recurring giving. So if you haven't if you haven't stopped what you're doing on the website yet and started uh, and/or started uh, the Church Center app, um, please do that. And two, for uh, next, for your grace. So in a week and a half, you might have to if you give through the website, you might have to re-enter your your, your information if you're a one-time giver or set up a recurring giving gift again. And so if you haven't, if you're willing to do that, thank you. Um, And just thank you for how God is moving and building his church here at harvest. And just as an update, we want to praise God again for how God provided financially. We closed 2023 really, really strong. We had a big deficit. God brought us into the black. Praise God for that. But I also want you to know, just because it's important, that January we were behind giving and so far and through February 14th of this month, earlier this week and Wednesday, of our $25,500 budget, we have we've brought in 6100 And so just uh, just so you're aware, so you can be praying for God to provide, he will and he's faithful. But as you consider how God is moving in your heart and what part you might have to play for God to continue to work here, just please keep that in your prayers. But praise God that he's faithful. Amen as we continue to see today. In John 6, uh, we're going to see God move powerfully, but as before we open up that text and dive in completely, I have a question for you. Anybody have a memorable summer job from your high school days or your college days, right? Anybody have memorable ones? I've got some people shaking their hands, raising your hands. It's okay to class participate here. Raise your hands. We're, well, you know, welcome to school, Faith. We're, we're all coming to class today, right? And so class participation is welcome and invited and wanted, and I have a memorable job. The summer between my sophomore and junior year, I work in a warehouse. I work for the United States uh, Naval Academy in their warehouse, which is, uh, the, their warehouse is located right across from the Naval Academy, across the Severn River. And so what we did there, we stored everything that you could get, uh, that you would buy, uniforms, um, the, the different things that go along with being a midshipman that you would need. And, and part of the biggest thing that we did was uniforms. Um, and so we had a big role in what was what is called I-Day. Anybody know what I-Day is? It's called induction day. When plebes come in and they get inducted into the Naval Academy and they enter, uh, they, they get things like their haircut, they get uniforms, and they begin this summer uh, training, if you would, uh, and before their summer year. And they go in with hair like Austin and they come out with hair like me, okay? <laughs> um, and, and among lots of other things. But the plebe year, the freshman year, the first year um, in the Naval Academy is not an easy year. It's filled with a lot of information accumulation and the, the upperclassmen can stop you and test you at any time and if you get wrong answers, well, well, good luck. Um, and the push-ups and other things will come your way. Um, and so it's, it's a testing ground, it's a proving ground to, to mature into what will be a military officer. Um, at the end of the plebe year um, for the Naval Academy, there's something called to sort of matriculate out of it. There's something called... Sea Trials. Anybody heard of Sea Trials before at the Naval Academy? Um, Well, basically what they do is for 14 straight hours, it is a rigorous test-abung test for the pleeps. and their companies have to work together to solve a variety of tasks like this. It's, It's modeled after the Marine Crucible, and it involves things like emergency resupply, shore defense, Spartan relay, combat fitness test, military operations on urban terrain, damage control like pipe patching and fire hose handling. You guys tired yet? Well, we're just getting started. Underwater events, aquatics and swimming challenges, endurance tactics, hill assaults, two-mile regimental run, ground fighting, stretcher relays, land navigation, survival skills, stimulated bridge defense and demolition, paintball, endurance course, obstacle course, pugil stick jousting, riverine operations, rucksack run, and casualty evacuations. Woo! All while being enthusiastically encouraged by upperclassmen. You'll see a picture of it on the screen. This is just one event. That guy looks like how many of us feel this morning, right? <laughs> Stressed and strained, short on sleep and long on trial, tribulation, tension. But these trials are important because they're meant to test the resolve of the individual midshipmen, but also the, the collective, the company to take information that should have been learned in the classroom or through different exercises throughout the year and move it into application to see if they can continue to grow because it's it's meant to reveal where you still need to grow, reveal weaknesses and Achilles heels, to affirm that you can do far greater than you think you actually can. Your mind plays tricks on you. Your body can actually do a lot more than you think it can. To push yourself past what you think is your breaking point. And to graduate, to move on to the next step, the next season, to prepare you ultimately to survive and to thrive in a world that is ultimately out to get you. So that when you're in combat, when you're in battle, you will act reflexively and intentionally and be calm under pressure, learning to trust in situations that are overwhelming, learning to focus when the storms are raging and the literal bullets are flying. Today, in John chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus put his disciples into his version of a sea C-trial, literally and figuratively. We're going to see that Jesus, as we commit our lives to follow him, enrolls each of us in his school of faith, filled with lessons and trials and tests, field trips, learning laboratories all meant for us to accomplish our purpose of growing to be more like Jesus and God glorifying himself through Jesus. These sea trials are loving and grace-filled, although sometimes, if not always, they feel overwhelming. They're meant to reveal to us our own inadequacies, our own areas where we are relying on ourselves where we are not as strong as we think that we are and to reveal Jesus's greatness over it all. In trials and tribulations that are bigger than us, Jesus reveals that he's greater than us and that while the trial might be great, Jesus is greater. I don't know what your sea trial is today. I just know the reality is in life, you're either in one right now or multiple ones. You're coming out of one or you're about to head into one. How are you handling the situations and seasons of your life right now that are overwhelming? Are you focusing on yourself and are you drowning as we will see today? Or are you focusing on our savior so that you can stand? When the fear begins to flow and that's natural, that's normal. Are you leaning on your faith in God? Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in yourself and beginning to succumb to that fear Today, the big idea is this: you'll see it in the text, you'll see it on the screen, you'll see it in your notes. That faith is trusting our Savior and not ourselves in every season and situation. And you might be like, "Duh." (laughs) But one of the biggest points of the text today, and one of my biggest prayers for you, is to not make this just an intellectual intellectual accumulation of information. Yeah, I'm going to trust Jesus. Are you really? Like, are you really in your storm right now? Are you trusting Jesus? Or if you're really, really honest with yourself, are you trusting yourself? And how's that working out for you? Because the storms in life are often ordained by God to reveal his grace for us And to reveal our insufficiencies and his sufficiencies to put us in a posture of dependence on God. Will you learn that lesson? Will you apply that lesson today? Where do you need to? Because maybe your C trial is parenting, or it's your job, maybe it's a physical challenge, a financial issue, maybe it's a relationship that just isn't reconciled. Maybe it's a marriage that is struggling, a situation that's overwhelming. We all have them. The question isn't, don't, do you have your trials, see trials? The question is, what are you doing in them? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. God, I just sense that you want to work in this place. You've worked in my heart this week, and you've convicted me in a big way through this text. You've also encouraged me. And God, I pray that you would do the same Holy Spirit right now, that you would reveal to each of us that you are greater than us that you are sovereign over every season, every situation, and every storm, and that you will accomplish your purposes in them and through them for your glory. I pray that you would eliminate distractions and just focus our hearts on your beauty and your power and your majesty this morning. Jesus, make us more like you, we pray, in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to the gospel of John chapter 6. We're going to look at the verse, 21 verses of John chapter 6 today. Um, as we go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. This is a word of the Lord, um, as the Apostle John wrote it, as he was carried on by the Holy Spirit. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are you to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes, two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, make the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also saw the fish as much as they wanted And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, "'Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost.'" And so they gathered them up, and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "'This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world.'" Perceiving then that they were about to take him and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew up to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, question for you. You can be rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hand, but if you're a brave soul and want to raise your hand, you're welcome to. Who wants to become more like Jesus this morning, right? I do. But if we're really, really honest with ourselves, how often We want the product of sanctification, which is the fancy way of saying becoming more like Jesus without the process of sanctification. We want to be more like Jesus without having to go through the trial. We want to be more like Jesus without feeling rejected and abandoned and being mistreated. We want to be more like Jesus without having to be uncomfortable. My friends, the cross is uncomfortable, isn't it? That's putting it lightly. You see, the reality beautifully is, is that there is no sanctification without God lovingly pruning us, pruning away with sharp shears, the areas of sin in our life. Because he cares for us like a gardener does with grapes. There is no process of sanctification without sculpting with a hammer and a chisel, because God wants to create us into his masterpiece, but you don't get that way using a feather. Like a sculptor, you're chiseling away the block of the old flesh to make us more like Jesus. My friends, there is no process of sanctification without becoming gold or more like Jesus without the refining fire, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1. We want the gold without the fire, Right? because the fire is hot, we don't want to have to go through it. We don't want our flesh, there's this inner battle to be burned away, if we're really honest, some of us, with some of these things. These things hurt, they're painful, but they're also beautiful, aren't they? Because we can trust that the one who is in charge of it all is making us more like his son. So if we really want to be more like Jesus, we need to learn to embrace the trials and not try to avoid the trials. Friends, what would change in your life if you didn't just acknowledge the reality that God lovingly prunes us, sculpts us, shapes us, refines us, but actually chose to embrace it instead of trying to fight it? What would change? What needs to change? Because God loves us immensely and he unconditionally wants his best for us he has enrolled us in the school of faith. Jesus is the headmaster, and he is our teacher. It is a school where we, need to, we are called to be ever-growing, but we are never graduating this side of eternity. It's progressive sanctification. And so we all have a new lesson to learn. We all have, While we might be in different stages, stages or different seats in the classroom or different grades of maturity, we all have a new step to take. Because Jesus' school of faith makes and molds sinful rebels like you and me into faithful followers of Jesus like the United States Naval Academy takes teenagers and molds them and makes them into military officers. But it doesn't happen without trials and testing. So two lessons from this text of the part we just read and the part we'll read later. Two lessons from Jesus' school of faith for you and I today. And if we need to view the school of faith is this, a daily apprenticeship to become more like Jesus. Like a blacksmith teaching his pupil how to make a new tool using the iron, or the hot fire. And if this school had a motto, it might be something like this. Jesus' school of faith full of grace and truth for the glory of God. The first lesson from the text that we need to learn today that Jesus is teaching us is this, that when the situation is overwhelming, depend on Jesus' provision. When the situation is overwhelming, depend on Jesus' provision, and that's what we see in the feeding of the 5,000 right here. Verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, after this, which, well, we go, whoa, what's coming after chapter 5? Well, remember the gospel of John, John in John 20, 30, and 31, states with clarity that he intentionally is very specific with the parts, of the, God, the parts of the encounters with Jesus that he puts in here. He doesn't put all of the encounters with Jesus, but he puts the ones in here. These things have been written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so there's actually a lot of time that has passed between John 5, the end of John 5, and the beginning of John 6. Things like the Sermon on the Mount Jesus has taught. Things like field trips to heal the lame and the blind. And so these disciples, as we get into the feeding of the 5,000, have been enrolled in the school of faith after putting their trust in the Lord for a period of time now. They've had a front row seat, if you would, of the greatest teacher of all. But what we're going to see is what they struggle with is honestly what you and I struggle with today. We have intellectual accumulation of information, but so often we struggle with application. They've learned and they've sat under, they've taken copious notes and maybe you've been in church all your life and you've had your Bible highlighted. You can quote scripture after scripture. You know all the right Sunday school answer. You won the sword drills. But when life hits you Monday morning, tomorrow in a way you didn't expect and a trial comes, you have no idea what to do or you revert back to self-reliance. Because we have the information, but we struggle in the application. But all throughout this text, we see God's grace. So after this, a lot had happened. Now the context. On the other side of the Sea of Galilee, frankly, we don't exactly know where this is. There are a lot of biblical scholars that have opinions, and I, I, very, I believe pretty strongly that it's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You'll see a map up here on the screen behind me, and I believe it's, it's a little south. East in a desolate area, um, southeast of Bethsaida. So, if you're looking at that map, sort of southeast on the eastern port of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, we see that the timing of this event is during Passover. Verse four. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, what is a Passover? Right? It's a feast remembering how God saved His people. He delivered them out of Egypt by slaughtering a lamb and instructing instructing them to kill uh, lambs and take the blood and apply it to the doorpost because it's the applied blood of the lamb that saves us from death, pointing us to Jesus. Now, what's important to note about this text is that there are a lot of references, both in chapter five, six, and even going forward, Comparing Jesus to Moses, it's underlying here. We don't have time to get into all of the different details, but that's an underlying theme because the Jews looked up greatly to Moses. But as Tim Keller says about Jesus, he is a true and better Moses. So a lot of these things are underlying here what's happening. There were 5,000 men here this is such a big miracle that this, this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. There are other texts that are recorded in all four Gospels. This is the only miracle in all four Gospels. So we're going to pull pieces from the other Gospels to help get context. We're going to anchor in John 1, uh, John 6 here, um, but we're going to pull pieces from the other Gospels. So we know the 5,000 men are there, but we know from other Gospels that women and children are also there. So the mo- more accurate number is that there are probably about 20,000 people, give or take, here. it's a lot of people, isn't it? Now, Jesus had attracted a crowd, and with the signs and miracles that he'd been doing, they they walked up on a mountain. And I don't know about you, but when I walk up on a mountain, I get a little hungry, get a little sweaty. And they walked up on this mountain, and the text says they sat down, Jesus and his disciples. Can you just imagine their disciples, like, finally, I get some alone time with Jesus. Woo! And then Jesus looks up, and he sees these people coming. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes, he saw a large crowd, thousands coming towards him. How do you react when your day is interrupted by people? (laughs) Not just one person, but a large amount of people. Uh, I can take my Sunday afternoon nap and the phone rings. Oh, a nice quiet day in the office, and then I get a text. Oh, this is going to be great, and then dot, dot, dot. Somebody bursts into your office. Do you see the obstacle or do you see the ministry opportunity? Are you focused on yourself? Are you focusing on others? Because here's what we see with this text. It's not just people that come, but problems that come. Because people come with problems. I love you, but people have problems, me included. (laughs) But Jesus lifted up his eyes. And we know from Matthew's version of this account that he had compassion on these people. Are you willing to be interrupted for the gospel? And they show up, what's their problem? They're hungry. They need to eat. And this hungry can turn to hangry very quickly. And I don't know about you, but 20,000 hangry people, oof. So Jesus looks at his disciples and you know, in the school of faith, it's pop quiz time. Anybody else get goosebumps when you heard the words pop quiz? But he sees the people coming. Look at the text, right? Verse six, or five and six, he goes, Jesus said, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that all these people may eat? And look at verse six. He, Jesus said this to what? Test him. It's test time in the school of faith. But Jesus already knew what he was gonna do. Jesus is never not in control, but he wants to test you and I. How's it going in your discipleship journey? Are you gonna trust in yourself or are you gonna lean into me? Where, Where is God testing you today? And this situation is overwhelming, right? There are thousands that are coming. And imagine if you're at home today and you get a, you know, it's, it's overwhelming enough when our, our kids want to bring their friends in from the neighborhood just for eating, Like, right? I got no food in the cupboard, right? Or you get a text, hey, can I come over and hang out? And you're like, I got to clean my house. I don't have milk, like whatever. Like that's just two people. Imagine 20,000 people. Where's all this food going to come from? This is not a problem a few pizzas from Domino's or a DoorDash delivery of Chick-fil-A can solve. And you can just sense Phil's pulse beginning to race, his palms beginning to sweat. And maybe you are too. He's like, Jesus put me on the spot. The people pleaser in me can relate. I don't want to fail Jesus. What's the right answer? I don't see the right answer. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? The practical part of me just goes, the problem solver just goes, I, uh, it's not adding up. But we see the purpose. Jesus wants to test Philip. Philip had seen Jesus and his other disciples do miracles. Philip had seen Jesus take water and turn it into wine. Philip had seen Jesus make the lame man walk. Philip had seen Jesus take a kid on to his deathbed and give him life. Philip had seen Jesus. He had been on all these field trips, but now the test was here. And What would he do? Where would he look, himself or others? Jesus gives us these tests not to be gotcha moments, like, ha ha, you failed. But more got you moments that he can reveal how much he has us, that we can learn to rely on him and trust in him each and every day. To convict us and to reveal his compassion and remind us and renew us afresh of our so fleshly quick desire to rely on ourselves, of his surpassing greatness and his enduring faithfulness, of his sustaining grace. So friends, in life's moments that are when they're exhilarating, whether they're exhilarating or whether they're overwhelming, are you turning to Jesus, trusting in Jesus or surrendering to Jesus? So think about, I want you to think about your situations right now that are overwhelming to you. And we all have them. And let's take a little test in the school of faith. How are you responding? We're gonna see four different responses in this test. So I want you to take out your number two pencils, sharpen them up, get your Scantron answer sheets out, a traditional A, B, C, or D answer, okay? And how are you doing in this test? Remember, God's grace. This isn't you know in and through it all. But let's be honest and open, and allow God to reveal in our hearts where He wants to grow us, where He wants to affirm us, where He wants to encourage us, where He wants to point us of areas of that we need to repent of. So, when a situation overwhelms me, am I the first possible answer? And evaluate yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you: Is this am I ignoring and dismissing the situation? Now, we're going to pull from another gospel here because the account because it's super helpful. So Mark's account of this, this, uh, this experience happens in Mark 6. So Mark 6, 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away, the people, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You know what their solution was? I want to ignore the problem. Maybe it'll go away. And even more than that, I want to send the problem away. I want to dismiss it, right? Get out of here. I don't want that problem. You send somebody in your small group, they text you, you're like, go talk to somebody else. I ain't got time for this. I need to watch my show on Netflix right now. (laughs) They send them away. Now, when you dig into Mark 6, and we're not gonna spend a lot of time in it, you actually see in verse 34, Jesus, the text says that Jesus had compassion on these people, the thousands that were coming, like, because they were sheep without a shepherd. He looked at their heart the disciples looked at the situation and you know what they saw? Problem. You know what Jesus saw? People. The disciples looked at the situation, they saw obstacle. Jesus looked at the situation, and he saw opportunity. What, are you, where, what lens are you using when you look at the situations and the storms in your life? Are you looking at others the same way Jesus looks at you? Are you looking at others the same way you hope Jesus is looking at you? You want Jesus to make time for you, to lavish you with compassion and grace to give you truth. Are you doing that for others? They didn't see the gospel opportunity. They just saw the obstacle. Oh, you're hungry? That sounds like a personal problem. Carlos, good luck. Go into the town, dig out some money. If you don't got it, I don't really care. Go buy it for yourself anyway. In Mark's account of this gospel, after they, verse 36, verse 37 comes and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. This no longer is a preference issue for the disciples. I want to receive them or I don't. It is an obedience issue. Obedience. You give them something to eat. Where are you looking at your storms and being disobedient in them? Jesus is asking you to do one thing, but it's hard. You can't see the answer. You don't like the solution. And so you are ignoring it or you are disobeying Jesus in it. And you know it, but you continue to do it because you don't know how to solve the problem. And that's kind of the point. Jesus wants you to look to him to solve the problem. He's gonna put you in situations that you can't solve to reveal your own heart issues, Because what the disciples were ultimately doing, they were justifying and rationalizing and dismissing the biggest problem, not the one that was out there with 20,000 people that needed food, but the one that was in here, their hearts that did not see people the way that Jesus wanted them to see them, that were not willing to sacrifice and to lay down and to seek Jesus. And friends, where are you doing that in your life today? Where are you justifying and rationalizing if I need to do it my way as opposed to Jesus's way? I wanted to do it in a way that is antithetical to the gospel, which has sent people away from Jesus that need to be fed. Do you notice what the disciples said? "Go into the town and do it yourself with your own money and your own food." Jesus says, "No,, the gift of sufficiency and food is free. Come to me, it's a free gift of God's grace. That's huge in this text. Isaiah 55, come to me for food. Even if you don't have money, come and eat. The disciples are like, go figure it out yourself. And isn't that what well, our flesh says? I'm gonna do it. You figure it out. You buy it. I don't got money. Jesus is like, come anyway. Praise God, amen. So where are you ignoring or dismissing a problem that Jesus actually wants you to be obedient in? Second possible answer, answer B on the Scantron, scantron sheet you might fill in this bubble is applying human reasoning to it. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6 of John. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. So Philip Philip is using logic. It's not a problem with that. A denarii was a day's worth of wages. 200 denarii is approximately eight months worth of salary. So imagine that. Imagine your salary on a yearly basis, take eight months of that and go, you're, like, you're mentally going, for this one meal, I need to come up with eight months of my salary to feed these strangers who showed up and are in an absolute inconvenience. And you're like, it's not going to work. It's not possible. It's impossible. That's the point. God wants to take our impossible and make it his possible. God doesn't want us to focus on what we don't have. But how many of us do that? In the school of faith, he wants to teach us to focus on Jesus, whom we do have. So Jesus now brings Philip into this math class in the school of faith, if you will. You see, when Jesus is teaching a class on math, two plus two doesn't always equal four. Because he looks at it and goes, You're, we're running the, the situation the scenario. Jesus, I, I feel like you want to take me on this mission trip but I don't have the money. Two plus two doesn't equal four. Jesus, and we look at collectively, we, you want us to plant a church, but we don't see where the people, or the is gonna come from, and we, two plus two doesn't equal four. Jesus, I, I feel like you're calling me to tithe. I know the Bible teaches that, but I just, I don't got enough money. I, I can't, I got all these other expenses. Two plus two doesn't equal four. And Jesus, our loving teacher goes, here's a problem. In my math class, you're forgetting one thing in the equation. You know what that is? Me. You're forgetting to insert me into the equation. God's economy, two plus two doesn't always equal four. He provides, he works. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So where are we relying on ourselves and our logic where Jesus is calling us to rely on him? And I can just tell you over and over in my life, I I fail at this, but I've also seen Jesus work in this in a huge way. The story of this church is a story of Jesus' math class when two plus two doesn't equal four. God does it differently every single time. You know, what the, you know what the baseline is, the common denominator. God always does it because God is faithful. Faithfulness is not just something God does. Faithful is who God is. He who calls you is faithful. First Thessalonians five twenty four. He will surely what? Do it. Now we know it. Will we believe it? And will we act on it? Where is God calling you to step out in faith? And stepping out is sometimes going. Stepping out is sometimes staying. But where do we, will we rely on God to provide? God wants to lead us into situations where we have to see him provide to enhance our dependence on him. Friends, where are you focused right now on the practical? And Jesus is asking you to focus on the supernatural. It is not wrong thing to be fiscally responsible. But when fiscal responsibility takes the place of Jesus' dependency, that is absolutely wrong. Where do we need to trust in God, that he's sovereign over it all? That he'll provide for it in all, as as Dave already said last week, that we need to be people that are willing to risk. But let me ask you a rhetorical question. If God is sovereign over it all, if God provides for everything in it all, is it actually risk at all? Is it? It's probably more risky to not do it, Right? (laughs) Where is Jesus asking you to trust and to grow your faith muscle? And here's the point. When you take a big step of faith and God provides, guess what he's preparing you for? An even bigger step of faith to come. Just like the math classes always get harder, right? Oh, great. I got through arithmetic. Yes. Oh, oh multiplication. Uh-oh. Oh, algebra. Geometry. Geometry. You know, on, and all these other math that you guys know that I don't because I didn't get that far. All right? Praise God for his grace. Hmm. Rejoice in his sufficiency, he's faithful, where you trust him. The tests reveal our inadequacy, praise God. But the tests from God reveal Jesus' sufficiency, praise God. The third, scantron answer of this test, and the situation overwhelms me, am I doubting Jesus in it? Look at what happens next. Verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five loaves and two fishes. Fish, I don't know why I keep saying that. But what are these for so many? Now, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. One of the cool things that anecdote about Andrew is that he, when you see him in the text and, and throughout the Gospels, he's often, if not always, bringing people to Jesus. Praise God for that. But you see, his, he, he finds a boy in the crowd, brings him to Jesus. But look at his line. But what are these for, so many? What can five little loaves and two little fish do for twenty thousand people? Andrew's like, that's not even enough for a snack for me. We've all climbed a mountain. I'm hangry. I worked up an appetite. I can crush this. Imagine showing up for the men's breakfast, and I hope you do. And we get like 50 people, and there's like five biscuits and two slices of bacon. <laughs> That's great advertising, right? Everybody come. We got five biscuits and two pieces of bacon. Woohoo! But I hope you come. You're going to leave full, and there's going to be leftovers. I don't know how, but God's going to do it, right? But Andrew's like, Andrew's like all of us. Doubting is natural. Faith is supernatural. Faith is a gift of God's grace. We all doubt. Let's normalize doubting. We all do it. We're all doubting in situations in our life. It's not the doubting that I love in this passage. It's the bringing. Andrew's doubting did not stop him from bringing. Don't miss this. In his doubts, he still brought the boy in his lunch to Jesus. I don't think this is possible, but I'm going to offer it to you anyway. Jesus, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I'm going to bring it to you anyway. He didn't let his doubts stop him from being obedient. Praise God for that. Where are you allowing your doubts to debilitate you as opposed to bringing your doubts to Jesus along with being obedient? It's a tension to manage. So often we think in our faith we have to solve all these problems. Often in our faith we have to manage these tensions. I am doubting, but I am also bringing Doubting doesn't have to stop you from bringing, but friends, where are you allowing doubting? Because in essence, he's doubting Jesus, right? What can the fish do? What can the bread do? Do they have power in and of themselves? No, but he's doubting that Jesus can actually take it and do it. And remember, he's watched Jesus turn water into wine. He has watched Jesus make a lame man walk. He has watched Jesus work. He has been to field trip after field trip, object lesson after object lesson, and so have you. And so have I. But yet we continue to doubt, don't we? Where do we need to, in our doubt, trust? And not just be ignorant and go, don't doubt. Like, doubting is normal. We're going to doubt. But in our doubting, spiritual maturity is in my doubt, I'm going to continue to bring. I'm going to continue to give you to give. And I am so thankful for Andrew for doing that. This gives me hope. Well, are you willing to trust God's grace that he is big enough to handle your doubts as you continue to come to him fully ever, anyway? God will work whether we can see it or not. God will work whether we believe it or not. We just need to act obediently with all of our resources and watch God work. So doubting here is not, a, it's not condemnation. It's actually commendation from my point of view. It's, Andrew's normal. He's a disciple. He doubts like you and I but he still brings. He still brings the boy and his fish and his his loaves to Jesus. Where are you doing that? Where do you need to do that? Finally, D, surrendering it. This boy, I love this boy. We don't know much about this boy other than he's a boy. We don't know how old he's exactly. He's probably in the adolescent age, nine, 10, 11, 12. So when I think about him, I think about Isaiah. I think about Silas. I think about Jason Landon. That's this boy. He didn't let age stop him. And what this boy does is not natural because maybe my boys aren't like your boys or maybe they are, I don't know, but they darn near fist fight over the first piece of of pizza or the last piece of cake. This boy's hungry and he's willing to offer not just some of his lunch, but guess what? All of it. We know that this boy comes from a family of not a lot of income because it says barley loaves. That was what people that did not have a a lot of money made their bread with. He did not let his age or lack of resources stop him from offering all he had to Jesus. He surrendered it all. Here's my lunch. And he offered it all as a heart of worship. Where do you and I need to do that too? God, I only got five bucks. Give it him up. Anyway, the widow's too mighty. I only have one hour. It's not worth it. Yes, it is. Give it to him anyway. Watch him work. Watch him work. And would watch God's math, because Jesus takes a little and He makes leftovers. <laughs> Praise God. What would happen if we all gave Jesus everything? The world would change. We would change. What needs to change so that you will give Jesus everything? Surrender your five loaves and two fish. What is your five loaves and two fish? One of the biggest takeaways from this text that God brought me to the fore with this week is this. We are not meant to fix the situations in our lives. We are meant to offer everything we have in the, to Jesus and to situations in our lives. These disciples could not feed the 5,000 on their own. You can't fix your marriage on your own. You can't fix your financial situation on your own. You can't fix You're parenting on your own, but you can't bring it to Jesus. You can offer everything and lay everything on the table to Jesus and he can fix it because he's bigger and he's stronger and he works powerfully and his grace never runs out and there's always leftovers. Praise God for that. Where do you need to bring all that you have? Where you've been trying to fix and craft a narrative or, or, or human scenarios or situations or Frankly, trying to control, you fighting so hard for control, surrender is the opposite of control, isn't it? Control is trusting yourself. Surrender is trusting Jesus. Which one are you doing in your storms right now? And again, we know it, but are you willing to live it? And are you willing to go, Jesus, have it your way, but, but I still want to do it my way. No, Jesus is like, give it to me all. Trust me that my way is better than your way, even if you don't see it or understand it. And he's going to use it. It's not our job to feed the 5,000. It's our job to offer our five loaves and our two fish. Sometimes we get that inverted. Where are you inverting that today? It's so overwhelming. I won't offer my five loaves and two fishes because you're focused on the 5,000 and what you can't do instead of focusing on what Jesus can do and what you can do. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Jesus will work, absolutely, but we need to offer our five loaves and two fishes. He's gonna do it anyway. He already knew what he's gonna do, but we will miss out if we don't offer. So friends, where do you need to do that? Faith is trusting our Savior, not ourselves in every season and situation. And the second lesson that Jesus wants us to learn today is this. When the storm is raging, focus on Jesus' presence. Remember, this is a daily apprenticeship with Jesus. These miracles are pointing to Jesus's divinity over and over, that he is the son of God. So we get to the tail end of 14 and 15 here, and it says when the people saw this sign that there was food and there was food left over, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So you go back to the Pentateuch, you go back to Deuteronomy, where it says that a prophet like Moses even greater than Moses is gonna come. And they're like, this is the guy. And guess what they wanna do in 15? They want to anoint Jesus king over their earthly world. They want it their way. And Jesus is like, no. And a mob begins to form because Jesus did not come to fix their earthly problems. You see that? He didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. But they assumed that Jesus was there to fix their earthly issues. Jesus came to solve our eternal issues. He never promises us an easy earthly life. But we, so we need to shift that perspective that our storms are not meant to have a, allow us to have an easy earthly life. In fact, Jesus promises us that life will be hard. He promises that the world will hate us. He promises trials and tribulations. Why? Because he had to experience them all. But so often our perspective is warped because we think and we want an easy earthly life. And Jesus doesn't promise that. We need to look to eternity and to survive and experience and thrive in the storms. Where do you need to do that today? Shift your expectations, shift your focus. So Jesus, we know in Matthew's version of walking on water here that he withdrew to pray. And then verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat and they started across the lake to Capernaum. It was dark now and Jesus had not yet, to, he had not yet come to them and the lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat and they were frightened But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So remember, they're on one side, mostly like the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide. They begin to row three and a half miles in. They're about halfway across and a storm comes up. It was dark. It was at night that they got into a boat. It, is, it says, when they came to a lake, you're like, the lake, I thought they were at the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Galilee has many names. Lake Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberius. they're all the same body of water. Many of these disciples were fishermen who grew up in the family business of fishing on this lake, on this sea. They were experienced in boats, they were experienced with this body of water, but it did not help them when this storm came. Now think about the disciples. They were tired. They had hiked up a mountain this day. They had dealt with 20,000 cranky people on this day. They had walked all around 20,000 people to feed them loaves, and then they walked back around to collect the leftovers. Tired yet? They had fought off a mob all in the same day. They had watched Jesus work, and you can just, oh, I'm going to exhale, and I'm going to relax. And isn't it often after a great spiritual victory that that's when the greatest tests come? (laughs) When we begin to exhale, Ah. And that's these disciples. Jesus put them in a boat. It said, and in the John context here, it says they got into a boat. Now, this was no just evening stroll on a lake. We actually know from the Matthew account and from the Mark account that Jesus told them to get into the boat. Mark Matthew 14, 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side not only does Jesus make them get into a boat, he commands them to get in the boat and he sends them to the other side without him. He's praying. Prayer is vitally important. When you experience a great spiritual victory, often after that, you are most vulnerable. The, the disciples realize that the Sea of Galilee was often uh, the source of many great storms that rose up quickly. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they find themselves in a very literal sea trial. It's a field test of their faith. They were exhausted. They were rowing but getting nowhere. They were physically wiped. They were spiritually worn out. They were at the end of the rope. They were helpless. Their anxiety was pumping. Their minds were spinning out. They were expert fishermen. They knew the water. They knew boats, but none of that could help them. They couldn't rely on their individual knowledge or expert human expertise, their experience. They were helpless Maybe you feel helpless in the storms you're in today. One of the most intriguing and important aspects of this text is this. Remember, Jesus commanded them to get in the boat. So often we think in the school of apprenticeship of following Jesus that we will get to avoid the trials of life, the storms of life. Jesus sent his disciples into a storm in this text. He knew that. He intentionally sent them into a storm to teach them, to reveal inconsistencies in their walk, to strengthen them, to provide growth areas, to reveal to them his supremacy, his divinity. And he does the same thing for you and I today. Yes, yeah, sometimes the storm's are a result of sin and consequences around us that we can't control or inside of us, which we can. Sometimes Jesus organizes the storm or sends us into the storm so that we can grow, be sharpened every time the storm is, succumbs to the sovereignty of God to accomplish the purposes of God in the storm. What storm are you facing today, whether expected or unexpected? And where are you just like the disciples right now, rowing in the boat, but getting nowhere? Three and a half miles, your energy is whacked. You're like, I'm trying all my human logic, my reasoning, I'm exhausted. I can't control the weather. I can't control the wind, but I'm trying. If I can only control it more, it'll be great. And you're just, you're dead in the water. Maybe it's, Any number of categories. In the middle of the storm, where is your focus? On yourself, what you can do, or your Savior? And what's your purpose? Your way or God's way? Jesus is sovereign, He's omniscient. He doesn't send them into the storm to punish them, but in His He does it lovingly and graciously to grow them and to teach them, to reveal to them more about themselves and where they need to grow and some of their idols in their lives and their insufficiencies, and to teach them and reveal to them more of his divinity. Again, you don't get the process, the product of sanctification without the process of storms. Jesus allows us and or sends us into storms that are bigger than us to demonstrate the reality that he is greater than us. Praise God for that. Now, these storms, they've been battling the storm for about nine hours. Mark tells us that Jesus sees them about the, third, the fourth watch, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They're exhausted. It says that Jesus sees them from the mountain and he comes to them. Isn't that praise God that we have a God that comes to us? We have a God that sees our storms. And he comes to us in the storms, he makes his presence known in the storms, and he walks on water. He's not far from us in the storm, he's near. And he begins to walk on water, and depending on your, whichever the, the, the gospels you read this in, they're initially scared by it, they're afraid by what they see, they don't know what it is, and then all of a sudden Peter recognizes it, we're not going to go into a lot of detail here, but in Matthew 14, Peter gets out of the boat. This is actually Peter walking on water text. Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to step towards Jesus. And when he looks over at the waves and when he takes his eye off Jesus and when he looks at the waves, what does he do? He begins to drown because the waves are overwhelming. His focus shifted from Jesus, the Christ, and onto his circumstance. He can't control the waves, but he can not control his focus. He can't control the waves and neither can you, but he can't control his focus. And when his focus was on Jesus, He stood. When his focus was on his circumstances, he sank. Where's your focus? I love you, but where is your focus? You know intellectually that I should focus on Christ, but maybe experientially you're focused on your circumstances. You're focused on self-control. You're focused on yourself. I love you. You need to shift your focus onto Jesus. Jesus called Peter out. And he calls us out. He goes, oh, Peter, oh, you a little faith. Why do you doubt? If I'm Peter in that moment, okay, I got a laundry list. Jesus, do you see the waves? I'm tired. I'm worn out. Why do you doubt, Peter? I just fed the 5,000. How quickly are you to forget that I am sovereign over every situation? You experienced me an hour ago performing in a miracle, and yet you're doubting me again. And isn't that normal for us, Right? Oh God, you're great. But in an hour later, Jesus, where are you? You sent me in the boat without you. It doesn't feel like you're here. And anybody in a situation rhetorical right now that you feel like Jesus isn't with you, you think he sent you ahead of him. And he's like, see, have fun with that storm. Jesus sees you in your storm. He knows. Peter, why do you doubt? And you begin to rattle off that list. And Peter, Jesus, my holy imagination, Jesus like, Peter, remember my math class? All these things, the wind, the waves, the money, the people, the, the kids, the marriage. I am greater than all of these things. I am greater. It's not about how much theological information you can accumulate in the class as a life. It's about how much theological information you can apply and allow to transform your heart and your life. Jesus greets them on the water and he gets in the boat. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. Friends, can I tell you this, that there's something far more important in life than Jesus keeping you from entering the storms, although that's our, often our focus. It's a reality that Jesus demonstrates his power through the storms. There are some things about Jesus we can only learn through the storms of life. That's grace, amen? We can learn his character deeper and his love for us greater. God, Jesus doesn't always keep us from the storms. Jesus doesn't always calm the storms. Jesus will always calm us in the middle of the storm. Jesus loves you. The storms of life are Jesus' learning laboratory to teach you, to demonstrate to us how much he cares for us. Praise God for the storms of life. He reveals to us the idols of things that we have been clinging to, that we've been elevating his value over Jesus. And he, he strips them away from us or he will continue to allow the storm to reveal them to us until we surrender them. The choice is yours. They're painful and they're hard, but they're beautiful. What areas is Jesus trying to reveal to you as, as idols in your life right now? Has Jesus ever broken his trust for you? Has he ever not been faithful to you? Why are we so easily to forget Jesus's faithfulness, his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy? Reset our minds again on these truths. Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. That's a command, do not be afraid. Like the winds are crashing. My boat is rocking. And I don't know what your boat is right now. Maybe your boat is marriage. And there are some things, waves that are crashing over your marriage. And you're like, Jesus, get me out of here. Jesus like, I want to teach you about my grace in your marriage right now. Maybe your boat is parenting. Maybe your boat is your job. And these wind and the waves are crashing down around you. And Jesus is like, do not be afraid. It is I. Actually, in the Matthew and Mark version of this text, he says before that, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. That word take heart means have courage. Be of good cheer. You're like, cheer the wind, Jesus. It's like be of good cheer. I'm with you in the wind. I'm sovereign over the, the rain. I know where we are headed. And it is the best for you. Tell me where I'm going. Trust me. Tell me when we're gonna get there. Do you trust me? Yeah, well, trust me. Well, I want to control the situation. You can't. Will you trust me? And the word, it is I, the word I is not just a pronoun when you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, it is actually Jesus saying, I am. A reference back to Exodus. I am that I am. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the creator and I am the sustainer. I am Jesus Christ, Son of God. Do not be afraid. I uphold you with my righteous right hand. I am the land that lays my life down for you. I am the lion that is raised for you. I am the God that reigns over you. I am. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Remember that I am. Where do you need to remember that today? What is that storm in your life? Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, thank you that you are this storm. Thank you that you are the God that is and you are the God that is faithful. And in this moment, I just pray that you would remind myself and each of us these truths. That you are omniscient and unpowerful, that you see us in every storm. Jesus, that you meet us in every storm that you are present with us in the storms that we are walking through right now. That you calm us and you provide the peace in the middle of the storm. That our peace is not the absence of the conflict or the crisis or the storm, but Jesus, our peace is your presence in the middle of the storm with us. Change our focus, Jesus. Shift our eyes, Jesus. That you guide us through the storm you calm the wind and the waves and that you get us to the other side of the storm, to where you want us to be. And because of that, like the disciples did, when you got in the boat and you calmed the storm and you got them to where that we worship you, Jesus. And in this moment right now, I just pray that you work on all of our hearts and show us where you want us to let go and what you want us to lay down, to trust you, not intellectually, but experientially, with street level theology and daily application to trust you, to lean on you, to depend on you. Show us what you want if there's a command you want us to obey. Show us if there's, if there's an idol we need to repent of. Show us if, if there's a situation that we need to surrender. Show us what you're asking us to offer. Teach us afresh, oh Jesus, what it is to be your apprentice to humble ourselves to the point of death, to be willing to die to anything that makes us not like you, even death on a cross, to pick up our cross and follow you. Because we say we wanna be like you, God, help us to actually mean it and choose to live it and live a life of obedience and exaltation that lifts you high and trusts in you each and every day. You've done the miracles before, do it again in our lives, Jesus. You've been faithful before. Help us to remember again, Jesus. Forgive us for so easily forgetting and focusing on ourselves and not you. Teach us to trust and help us to obey. And thank you for your grace that you don't let us drown like Peter when we look at the waves. But you lift us back up, you refocus us, you get us back in the boat, and you lead us. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.